Alrighty. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Start the Beat podcast with Sykes. I am Sykes and this is my podcast. Before we get started today, I wanted to take a brief moment to thank everyone who has been checking out the episodes. Been getting a lot of positive feedback from my peeps. Seems like you people are enjoying the conversations and I'm happy you all decided to come back. Again. If you are new to the show, I'm glad you're here too. And to be honest, I'm glad that all of this is working. I'm just a glad dad today. I'm not a dad. I hope that never happens. Anyways, please feel free to make yourselves at home. And as always, there is beer and soda in the fridge. Man, I'm feeling confident today. I don't know what's up. Got a little extra pep in my step. Tell you what, today's episode is a very special one because my Uncle Timmy, a.k.a. Aunt Tina, is on the show. For those of you who don't know my uncle, he is both a Jack and Jill of all trades. (laughs) He's gonna fucking hit me for saying that. (laughs) But yeah, he's, he's modeled... He's recorded music, written music. Obviously, if he's recorded it, he's written it. And, uh, you know, he's performed all over the world. And right now, he's uh, currently writing a book about our family. And, you know, we're going to get into that. So, I'll save the details for later when he talks about it. Something else cool about this episode that I want to share is that it was a test. It was a test and the potential portability of my podcasting operation. Let me explain. You see, my uncle doesn't live in Pittsburgh. He lives in Manhattan. And, you know, me and Jasmine were up there a few weeks ago, and while I was packing everything up, I was just thinking, man, it would be awesome if I could get Timmy to do an episode. So, I brought one USB microphone and just figured we would we would make it happen somehow. Work with what you got, you know? So, uh, <laughs> I brought that microphone, you know, we set up on his floor in his apartment. <laughs> and, uh, we had all of the noise from Times Square just on the other side of his window. <laughs> but luckily, aside from just some police sirens and car horns and, you know, typical New York City shit, the podcast actually turned out okay. It sounds listenable, so yay. The test was a success. Success. Success, success. Anyways, we're going to talk about all sorts of shit today. You know, just, uh, fuck. I don't know. I don't want to spoil anything. Well, I'll give it to you like this. Alright, I'm going to give it to you like this. There's going to be so much scandal. So much gossip. And just fucked up family drama that it's going to be... It's always going to be like an episode of your favorite television show. So strap in. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Sit back. Relax. And let's start the motherfucking beat! Alright, 
I'll do that at home. Okay. So, but yeah, I just think this is like really cool because you're pretty much the only person in my family that's laughed. <laughs> <laughs> the only person I talked to. For I, that's that's shocking. So, and I'm all the way here in New York. It's not that far. But it's not that far. <laughs> but it's. But I, I will be back in Pittsburgh soon. Of course, I haven't been back in Pittsburgh since since 9/11 happened. It was earlier than that, I feel. No, it was, well, I came when they shut down, when they shut down Pittsburgh, and it, it took me two days to get out of here because there was no, you couldn't get out of New York. They, they were like hoping we just all die, so they shut it down completely. <laughs> and so I had to go to the, um, the bus station and crawl around on my stomach for like a day and a half to get out because the buses weren't going out. And every time you tried to get on a bus, they'd be going, hit the ground, hit the ground, because there was another terrorist threat being called in at Port oh, Authority. Geez. But then I finally I finally got out of, um, of Pittsburgh, you know, I mean. Okay, so I guess we never really talked about this. Oh. Whenever you first left Pittsburgh, where'd you go? The first time? New York, yeah. I got in a bus. I was 19, I got in a bus and and came to New York and, and I got off in Times Square and it looked like Blade Runner. <laughs> this is the first time you had ever been here? Ever, at all? ever, ever, ever. I had $30 in my pocket. I had one friend here. He was a lawyer for a gay law firm and his name was Ed Glorious. I swear to you that was his name. <laughs> Hi, Ed. He's very alternative. He'll listen to this. His old boyfriend was originally Fred Schneider from the B-52. See, I'm dropping names already. I'm telling you everything about it. Fred Schneider and what he's like in bed. No, I'm not going to say <laughs> Okay, so you're... Okay, next story. So, no, so you're 19. You show up in New York. I have $30 in my pocket. What the fuck do you do? Uh, you look for Ed Glorious. That's what you do. <laughs> I found Ed Glorious. He was living with Marge Shulman, who was in advertising, and they lived up on the Upper East Side, but I got off the bus, and it looked like the end of the world. And as you know, your grandma was in the hospital at the time and the whole family completely fallen apart. And, you know, your mom was living at friends of my mom's, your friends, your grandma's, and there was nothing for me to do. What year was this? Uh, 79. Okay. 79. And, um, oh, no, 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 sorry, 80. Because um, it was um, Blondie had just come out with Call Me. That was, I do everything by either Elton John time. I've seen my whole life, Brian, is arranged with Elton John time, Donna Summer time, and uh, Blondie time. Okay. And then Madonna time. Okay. And then my time. That's a whole, my whole life. Well, no, actually it was, um, it was, um, oh my God, see, Black Human, let's say it was 79. It was, um, oh my, you know, it was 1980. Yeah, it was, the end of 79. I, no, okay. you're right, it was, that was Christmas. It was Christmas of 79, because Call Me was about to come out. And, um, and there was nothing left for me at home at all. Yeah, I was going to say, what made you leave just... Well, Sick your mom, your, well, no, there was, there was nothing else I can do because I, I was trying to fix everything. As you know, there was so many trouble, so much problem with drugs and alcohol in our family and I couldn't fix it. And I was the only one that didn't drink or get high and they weren't listening to me. And then, and then I wasn't living at home when I left. I was living downtown because I was University of Pittsburgh and stuff like that. And then, uh, well, my second year of college, I couldn't afford to pay for it anymore because I was working full time. So I went from a B student down to like a D student because working 40 hours a week, it's kind of hard to study. And I thought just a silly. So in thought, I said I'd go to New York and become a new wave punk rock model, which I did. And, <laughs> which I did. And my friend at Glorious. And so I came here and um, well, there was, anyways, mom, your grandma was in the hospital and your sister was staying with friends of theirs. And it was um, like Wanda. Did you ever meet Wanda? My mom's 
my mom's really truest friend, Wanda. Your mom, your mom lived there for a while when, when my mom was in the hospital. Possible. It's possible. She's very Well, her friend, her son Ricky worked for Andy Warhol here in New York. And so I had just paid the electricity bill in my mom's house because there was no lights on. And I'm sitting there and your mom had decided to go live with Wanda. So I'm sitting there with your Uncle David and he was <laughs> pretty scary and <laughs> worshipping a lot of Satan back then. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, who am I helping now? I'm the only one left beside David worshiping the devil and I'm gay he's gonna sacrifice me in a minute so I'm like where the hell am I gonna go and it was Wanda who said Susie's gonna stay with me till your mom gets out of the hospital and she's like and I had a bus ticket and she's like go to New York like you planned on you can't do anything here your mom's gonna be in a hospital for at least a month getting better I'll take care of Susie because I was just gonna raise your sister which is what I tried to do most of my life growing yeah. up but she didn't want to stay there with David acting crazy and she wanted a house you know, I'm, I'm just her teenage brother. I can only do so much, and I didn't have money to feed her besides you know, things like that. So she went to go stay in a real house, Wanda's house, by the school. And Wanda just said, go to New York, and I did. And, oh, God, it's, so, this is book number two. So I got off. It looked like Blade Runner. And I, you were going to be a, a new wave punk model. A new wave punk model, and I was. I got, Tell me a little bit about I that. I got signed two days later. Um, it was a big agency. You can Google it. I was in People, this is when I was in People Magazine. Oh, please find the thing of me in People Magazine. Okay. Because I don't have a clipping anymore. And it was a big, big interview. It's me and 10 other models. It's big. And um, it was a punk rock modeling agency called La Rocca right? Uh, whatever that means. La Rocca Agency, and they're looking for new wave punk models. So, and Glorious is like, you have to go down. Because back then, I was very thin, tall, had purple hair, big widow's peak. You know, everyone looked that way in the 80s. We all looked very androgynous and severe. <laughs> you know, white face, black lips, purple hair, you're done. You know, like Claude Stoney and Gary Newman. Yeah. Everyone looked like a boys, girls, it didn't matter, everyone looked the same. And so he said, go down there, you're a shoe. And so I went down, they signed me immediately. But you know, it's an independent thing. So I would do all these fashion shows for like Fiorucci, Betsy Johnson. Basically, you weren't paid, they would just give you the clothes. And it was fun. You would get lots of good pictures, which I should send you on Facebook, but that doesn't make sense because people can't see pictures on a podcast. Never mind. Well, anyway, <laughs> I guess that's kind of dumb. You can tell I'm dating myself now, thinking people can see me as I talk. So um, the thing is, um, oh yeah, so I got that. And then my first really big gig, two interviews was, which your mom and my mom was, uh, about six months later, I was in People Magazine because they did a big special about La Rocca. So I was right there. And of course, by then, you know, my mom's out of the hospital and, and she's really worried. I'm like, mom, I want to try to make it big here because my plan, Brian, always was to save your mother and my mother. Oh, I'm gonna cry now. That's what my book's like. Oh, no. That was my plan. Yeah. That was my plan. Because I'm the only one who wasn't getting high <laughs> and I have to save them. Which is a which is a which is a syndrome. You can look it up yeah. in books. It's called the golden child syndrome. It's the one that doesn't get high. They feel guilty, so they have to fix everyone. And that was me. And it didn't work. <laughs> it can, and so I kept trying to become famous so I can make enough money and literally move my mom and your mom, my kid's sister, out of Pittsburgh. Well, obviously it doesn't work that fast. And then I was on Saturday Night Live, the TV show, which you can watch me 
in the library, television, CBS, NBC library, whatever. And so I did that. And that was my first big paying gig, but that was only a few hundred dollars. And that was when the movie came out called Idolmaker, which with Richard Sharkey was his name. So I was one of the featured extras. They were supposed to do a thing in the mud club. And so I sat in between him and smoked some brandy cocktail cigarettes with purple hair and black lips and like, you know, you know, cock rings up and down my arm and shoulder pads. And your and my mom, your grandma, sees me on TV. Your sister's there with Susan Breitbart, you know. Oh, God, yeah. Sitting there watching it live. And I'm calling them up from a payphone in New York. There's no cell phones, honey, 1980. I'm like, Ma, I'm on Saturday Night Live tonight. She's like, what? And I'm just like, Susie, Timmy says he's on Saturday Night Live. And they watched it. And all I could hear was, oh, my God, there he is. It was really kind of funny. Because it's live, but then you can see it again an hour later. So that was a big deal. And um, and I did all that and tried to become famous modeling that. And then my big break was doing, was up for this big jean commercial, Jordash jeans were a big deal. Deborah Harry just did a commercial for them. And um, they were looking for unknowns for a club scene. And I was perfect to fit the bill. But then the guy who booked all the models, who was gay himself, but one of very self-loathing homosexual, he would never book the other gay models. Because it was kind of like internalized homophobia. So he booked another guy, which wasn't as good as me, who didn't get the part, and neither did I. And that would have been my big break on that television commercial. So instead, I met a guy, I better not mention his name, we'll get sued. His name was Robbie. And um, the one I told you about for the microphone turned on, and he wanted to start a new wave modeling agency in LA. Okay. Right? Just like La Rocca. So I moved out there to only find out he was engaged to marry a famous jazz singer's daughter. And then they ditched me and threw me in the street. And I lived literally in the streets for three weeks. I slept in a band. In L.A. In L.A. I slept in abandoned cars. You know, our family never had money. There was no one to yeah. help me out. Whatever's on my own. And so I called my friends in New York. They're like, oh, my God, we'll send you money now will get you out of LA and I'm like no I think I should be here for a reason I'm like what you should be living in the streets for a reason I said no there's this really cool store called Flippa Hollywood and I went in and applied for a job and they said well where are you living and I said that car down the road which <laughs> is true story and they hired me and then the, the lady that ran it was named Alice Pollock who Google her she's a very famous designer in the 60s she had a store called Quorum she invented the MIDI after the Mini and the Maxi very famous British designer and she hired me right off the bat she liked my energy I was from New York I and mean, things like that and then she um oh that's when I lived with the Go-Go's in Silver Lake that's yeah. when I briefly lived there and then they got signed and then she started her own record label which is that record behind your head dancing with warlords on the flip sound and she's the one to put out my first record because she came to me in a store because I would walk around making up songs in my head like my love for you was like the cat okay so that so she got you into she music. started me I, that. I wanted to ask you her best friends were David Bowie Elton John Mick Jagger all these people and she said you have an energy like they do it's unusual but if someone markets it properly and you're a good songwriter because I hear you make these songs this can work so she put out my first record and I tied with Adam Ant in Battle of the Bands <laughs> I think they actually referred to me as Tina Termite but that's another story and oh, oh then my name well here's my how I got the name Tina Benet you know so what happened was when I was modeling in New York for La Rocca I if I would get a zit on my face like a big zit what you did in those days you took a Maybelline eyeliner because everyone wore black eyeliner boys girls you know the cure it was all the same everyone looked that way you would light the eyeliner and make it soft and then put it over your zit and pull it off and it would make a big black beauty mark so 
that was an old trick we all did. Kids don't do it anymore, I guess. But back then, the 80s, you know, it was very low rent. You did whatever you could to cover your acne. You know? and, so, and New York was rough then. Everyone had bowler holes on their faces. So, you know, I'm looking at you twice back then. And, um, and in my bowl, I had it on a zit. And there was this French guy flirting with me. And my zit had fallen off in my drink. And he was saying to me in French, your beauty mark has fallen off into your screwdriver. And I had no idea what he was saying to me. And my friend Patrick's like, oh, my God. You remind me of Tina Louise from Gilly. Gilligan's Island, because she was that big black beauty mark. He goes, oh, from now on, I'm calling you Tina Louise. I'm like, okay, whatever, I don't care. And so then, when I moved to L.A., right, my friends would visit me when I was working at Flip from New York. They'd go, hey, Miss Tina, you know, gay culture. And I'm like, oh, hi. And then um, this lady, Alice, who is friends with the Stones and everyone, this designer, she goes, I'm putting on a show at the Palace, which was this big uh, uh, dance hall in New York, I mean, in, um, in L.A., Hollywood. And she goes, I want you to MC see it and also sing a couple of your songs. I'm like, oh, okay. She goes, but we got to change your name. And I'm like, okay, well, whatever. She goes, well, all your friends are always calling you Tina. Is that from, Gill from Gilligan's Island? I said, yeah, okay. She goes, well, it's kind of like Alice Cooper. I'm like, oh, okay. It's before Marilyn Manson, a new one came out. And she goes, no, your last name is Bennett. I said, yeah. She goes, that's not going to work. And I said, well, my friends in New York always said if I opened up a cosmetic company, because I wore so much makeup, that you should call it Benet Cosmetics. And she's like, Hmm, Tina Benet, that has a ring to it. But then Alice was an old hippie and she said, put a Z on the end of your name because that way it's Zen spelled backwards. She was really hip. And, she, and she's like, someday you're gonna become very famous, but you know, you have to wait till society changes a bit. She goes, but it will. And that's when I became friends with Boy George's best friend, Marilyn. Okay. Cause the whole 80s thing kind of started. She put out my first record, which did really well in LA and stuff like that. And then um, she bought a house from Bob Regeer who signed Prince and public image to, um, to I guess it was Warner Brothers at the time. And so he was interested in my music, came to see a couple of shows and liked it. And by now the whole gender bender thing was hitting big. Culture Club was now the biggest band in the world. Annie Lennox came out looking just like a man. It was a big deal. And so he saw me as a potential new androgynous pop star, right? Yeah. So she bought the house off of him. We went to Hollywood Hills to buy the house, but then, oh my God, I'll probably get sued. Well. Her husband tried to kill her. Oh, God. <laughs> the store was run by the mob. It was kind of scary. So anyways, the store fell apart. The record the record thing ended. So, so the store, the Flip is what you're talking about? Yes. It all... It, so Flip was a record store? No, it was a clothing store. That's where oh. Michael Jackson bought his t-shirt for, um, for, um, for Beat It. He's wearing our Flip shirt. And as for Irene Cara, wore her sweatshirt on one sleeve. That's from our store. That was invented in our store. So Flip became the biggest clothing store for young kids okay. in the 80s. And we were the first store in America to have a DJ in our store with MTV. We were the first store to ever do MTV Live into the store. It was a big deal back then. And I worked with Boy George's Friends and Levi Dexter and all these bands and stuff like Jimmy and the Mustangs. Okay. It was a big deal. So but then it all ended. After L.A.? After L.A. What year was this now? This was 1981 to 83. Listen to the... Beautiful traffic. Oh, and this was a quiet night, as you know. There was no blood on the front doorstep when you came in. <laughs> Which, I, I, when I said it was rolling out the red carpet, I didn't quite mean it like that, Brian. <laughs> <One squ> <laughs> it was quite feel like that. But, you know, that was 81 to 83. Okay. But then, what happened was, we're going to get sued again now because I'm going to mention Madonna's thing. What happened was, Barbara Gear, 
you know, said he didn't feel like he could do anything for me in L.A., but he said the best person for me to talk to is Seymour Stein in New York. Seymour Stein founded, uh, uh, found, 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 uh, Sire Records with the Talking Heads and, you know, Ramones and all those people. And Seymour, you know, loved, you know, unusual music. So I came here to New York to meet Seymour Stein to, to try to meet him. But I ended up not meeting him right off the bat, but instead got really involved once again in the New York club scene, but started performing constantly, working at Boy Bar, which was a big deal. Tom Cruise would come in her all the time. The National Choir would out him all the time. So we're always, <laughs> sue me, see if I care, all the time. That's the bar that Boy George passed out in on heroin, and we were in the front page of all the papers, and I had to hide Boy George and I was working in a brothel at the time as a houseboy by the UN and the madam was like let boy George stay in our room we'll keep him safe but he went to go stay at the ashram of the Buddhist he was hanging out with but it was our bar that he overdosed and passed out in which was in all the papers oh my god I have a scandalous life you're right but New York was fun then <laughs> it was <laughs> it was really fun but um yeah so that and so then I was just, I just did tons of shows tons of shows tons of shows and then from there I went on to London because Bananarama had released Venus and that was produced by um, Stock Aikman and Waterman and that had a connection and I did that song that you loved as a kid my version of Fire yeah used to play it all the time as a kid I remember it my god I'd wear candles on my head <laughs> and plastic clothes that was smart <laughs> So half my outfit would melt when I was on stage. It was like a burlesque act, but I didn't mean it to be that way. And, um, and he, they were interested. I sent them a demo, and they liked the song. Now, that's when they were just starting out, and they were willing to listen to different demos. By the time I got to London, they had released Venus with Bananarama. It was number one all over the world. And by them, they weren't taking any new acts unless they were already world famous, like Dead or Alive or, you know, all those other people. So there I am in London again. My life is a pattern of getting real close. And then, but that's showbiz, I suppose. And so then I lived in London for three years, did tons of shows and house clean for people left and right. And then was connected up with Seymour Stein again from Sire. Now by then, Madonna has started her own label. So Seymour's like, I'll talk to Madge, which is what he called her, um, about, about you. So I ended up coming back to New York, did a demo work with uh, Seymour in his How apartment. long were you in London? Three years. Oh, wow. Three years. It was a long time. Brian, I did so many shows. I mean, but you did know. Did you like London? Yes. I love London. I was on a bus in London and I said, this reminds me, I was in a place called um, St. Cross Pancreas in London. I don't think it's called Pancreas. It's a, <laughs> it's something like a, something like a St. Cross liver appendix. And I, and I sat on the bus and I said to my friend Anna, who would later be the lead singer for that song called um, S Express, I was sitting on a bus with her, 1988. And I said to her, I said, you know, this area really reminds me of my hometown. And this little old English lady turned around and goes, air, where's that, love? I said, Pittsburgh. She goes, same air quality. It's <laughs> 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 true story. And I, London was great because I, I like foreigners. You know, I'm really bad. I'm not necessarily the band, although I did do a video with them once. But no, I, um, I like London. I like the food. My friends didn't think I would be able to eat there because the food is very bland there. But then they opened 
opened up a 7-Eleven. My friends were like, good, now you can eat. And so, <laughs> but no, I like the fish and chips. And you know, if you order tuna fish, they put butter on their tuna fish sandwich, Brian. I'm not making that up. That's why they have heart attacks for the taste. <laughs> for taste. I don't know what that's about. But, uh, it was called the Queen once. I was in Camden Market. And Queen, the Queen, not Freddie Mercury, but the actual Queen, yeah. came through. And it was a good, and it, I saw her wave. She was in a little blue outfit. And she waved. I swear she looked right at me. <laughs> she's waving to you. She's waving to me. She knew my history. She's, yeah, she's a fan. I said, I saw you at Boy Bar. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> they added you there. But um, no, she, it was very nice. And I lived there for three years. But then I got connected back up with Seymour Stein. Okay, yeah. So what year was that when you came back to New York? Oh, now where are we at? 89, the end okay. of 89. So now we're getting really, what I'm trying to When do you is, meet me. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get close to whenever we first met. I remember. Which was probably 89. It was 90. 89, Christmas. Okay. It was the Madonna years. It was the Vogue tours. <laughs> <laughs> it was the beginning of Blonde Ambition. No, I remember meeting you was this In your really house. house. It was a really, it was, it was a Grandma's house. Oh, Grandma's, Grandma's house Grandma's first. House. Yeah, yeah. But it was like, it was a really big deal for some reason that you were coming home. And I mean, I'm like, I've like, been here 12 years. I was four years old, you know, and it's like, oh, Timmy's coming but home. You're very Timmy's grown coming up. home. And I'm just like, oh. who the fuck is this? You know, I'm four. I'm not saying that. But you know, it's like, I didn't know. I know. But it was like, you knew me right off the bat. Yeah. It was very familiar. And the first thing you said to me was, I know you. <laughs> okay. And I had a crystal around my neck. Who gave that to me? I think it was Nana Cherry, the pop singer Nana Cherry, because I was I would house clean during the day and do shows at night. You know Nana Cherry, right? No. Oh, okay. Well, no money man can win my love. It's sweetness that I'm thinking of. I do the dance in the Buffalo stance. It was number one everywhere. Her album was. I feel like that sounds really familiar. It was number one every country in the world. Okay. And I was her house cleaner when she was recording that song. And um, so um, on Virgin, so I almost called her Rolex Sushi. I'm still her friend. She's she lives back in Sweden though now and anyway so um she gave me this crystal it was like a new age because new age was very big in the 90s and i was the weirdest thing brian was right here because back then during those like 90s new agey days there's a thing that you're probably familiar with it's called your third eye it's supposed to be like your chakra thing where it's, it's supposed to be a very intuitive place where when you see people if you like them or you don't a lot of spiritualists say it's your third eye that's your intuition which is like, this is a jerk, or this isn't. And you picked up my necklace sitting on Grandma's cow, couch. And Grandma was there with her red wine ran. Yeah. And, her, and her Slurpee cup, of course, a big cup. <laughs> there was like a gallon. And Dr. Ho said I could have one glass of wine a day. Dr. Ho! I don't think... Oh, no! He's in the book. He's in the book, Brian. Oh, no. I haven't and thought about Dr. Dr. Ho. Dr. Ho. Dr. Ho. Oh, I got a cramp in my leg. You said Dr. Ho, and I got a cramp. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, he's Dr. probably. Ho. Oh, hang on, brother. Legendary Doctor Ho. Speaking of the cramps, oh my God! Oh, wait a minute. Hang on. Oh, ow, 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 ow. oh, no. Oh, hang on, hang on. Oh, how did that just happen? Were we at Doctor right. Ho. We're at Doctor Ho. So you took the necklace. Oh, that was a bad cramp. Excuse me. You took the necklace from around my neck and you put it. Up. It was so weird. You put it up to my third eye. That intuitive place you held it there, and you said, "I know you." And grandma went, oh my God, and your your mom, my sister went, that is freaky. <laughs> and it was, so we just became friends immediately. Yeah, I, I was, uh, I, you were like a blast. I just remember you being like so much fun. I, I remember, I, would try. I remember we were at my mom's house. Mom's house. My, my and I jumped off a chair and hit my head. It's my <laughs> vivid memory of you. 
when you when <laughs> I jumped off. Yeah, I will never. I hit my head in your chandelier. Yeah, you he he put a uh, you put a blanket around your neck, <laughs> and you stood up on the couch, and you're like, I'm Superman. And, and I like, jumped, yeah. and I hit my head. You jumped, and you smacked your head off the ceiling. I almost knocked myself out. Yeah, silly queen that I am. I haven't been the same since. But I feel like. Yeah, that's like, I mean, I still think about it. Like, anytime. So do I. Anytime I haven't, like, thought about you, seriously, anytime I haven't Aww. thought about you in a while, it's like, oh, I wonder how you're doing. I think about you jumping oh, and hitting that's your so cute. ceiling. <laughs> well, you know, life back then was great. Everyone was getting along. That's the weird yeah. thing about our family, Brian. And But it happens a lot with drug that abuse. Was a, that was a really, not a really, really small time frame. Okay, part. An yeah. Okay. Very small. And then all of a sudden, all hell would break loose for the next four or five years. That's what that's what your life and my life are both like. That, but that happens in our family. There was there was a um, good period and bad period. Well, that was the thing. Whenever you were coming to visit, it would get better. Well, the first time you were coming to visit, I remember David not being happy about you coming oh, back. Very jealous. How dare I come back? Like I want to live there. Yeah, and then so like. And the thing was, at that time, yeah. I really looked up to him because he was the one who introduced me to like to music, and yeah, music and records and sure. movies and so much. And like, he adored you. And I think that I, I'm sure it was like a jealousy thing. Because, yes. But I, like, I, he, but it was really confusing as a child because I looked up to him yeah. and you know, he's like, everybody's really happy for you that you're coming yeah. back, like my mom and stuff. And I didn't like my mom that much. Oh, I, I, never, like, I never knew that. I mean, I like, I mean, it's, I was like a weird oh, you're thing, kid. you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? But like, I really looked up to David sure, and he yeah. was really upset that you were coming back and then you come and like, you're totally fine. Like I thought, yeah, you were, like, I, it's like, I was a monster or something. Yeah, you weren't like this weirdo that everybody was making you out to be, not yeah. everybody, but David. And of um, he doesn't want me there. Yeah. And yeah, that was that was like the a weird lesson in like I don't know what 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 I'm trying to say. Just in like well two sidedness of people or like that was like maybe one of my first memories of starting to see like the ugliness that was in the family because horrifying. I didn't I didn't understand yeah like you know sure. addictions and problems and things like that. And, yeah. Yeah. You know after that I started to notice the shift. In David's the darkness uh, because it wasn't too long after that that my parents split up. I remember, yeah. And then after that, I was practically living at Grandma's at house Grandma's because house. Mom was working. Yeah, all the time, we were down there all the time. And my dad was wherever the fuck he was wherever at. Was. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, I David lived there, so I was always be always the up, there, ups yeah. and downs, but between you know David and Grandma getting along. <laughs> yeah. Days when you know he's like threatening her. Yes, elder abuse. Yeah. And he shouldn't even be, he shouldn't have been living there, Brian. He's an adult. But you have to remember that David was beaten by our father from day one. And he had all these issues going on constantly. And, and he'd be very manipulative. So that's why he would oh, yeah. try was... to turn you against me that you don't even know yet. Because David always felt like he had nothing in his life. So you were something new that came along that wouldn't judge him in any way, shape, or form. So you just became his idol. So of course he wants no one, he doesn't want your attention turning to me or yeah. anyone that else. That makes because, a lot of sense. Well, you have to remember David had the maturity of an eight-year-old. I mean, he was institutionalized twice, Brian. Put away twice when he tried to kill grandma. You're my mom several 
more than two times. And it's heavy stuff. I know Jazz was like, oh my God, you look crazy. <laughs> Going home now. Yeah. <laughs> Checking out now. But, uh, <laughs> this, this is when it gets deep. It'll get back to the fun stuff. She's like, we're adopting. <laughs> get ready for that. No, but um, yeah. And um, but that whole thing with, with my mom, which is all through my book, Brian, is that, that grandma, your mom, my mom, she always had the guilt of my father beating David. She was always protecting David, but that's why she never put him out because of all the guilt of his beatings. And then it just became a double-edged sword. It became a, hor a horrible codependent relationship Yeah, where he would just let her die. And only, only if he only worried about if, if she disappeared, how was he, where was he going to live? Because he didn't work. But the thing is, but of course he loved her, but he, but it was also his fucked upness from having the maturity of an eight-year-old because yeah. of the beatings. And that's the thing. And that's not to excuse it, but that's what started all that stuff, Brian. I think I was there for three days. He goes, you can't stay here. This house isn't big enough. I'm like, I'm not staying here. I live in New York. <laughs> it's like, I just got back from London. I, I haven't been here in 12 years. Believe me, I don't plan on moving back to Pittsburgh. And of course, Grandma's like, you can stay here. This is your house, too. I'm like, I'll be here for a week, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then I come back maybe in a few months, Mom, you know? But the hard thing was because I, I was the closest one to your mom, and I was the one that left. Yeah. Which was hard, but she knew I couldn't stay there because the addictions and the drugs with everyone was just too much, Brian. And yeah. I would have offed myself if I would have stayed there. I mean, literally, because you just sit there and watch all the violence and you can't fix it. What are you going to do? Yeah. That's like a horrible movie that it won't was, turn it off. It was really weird. Like, I remember, like, <sighs> I, re I mean, like, I remember one time David and my mom getting into an argument because they both wanted grandma's pills what yeah see there's a lot of stuff i didn't know going on it's yeah i had hints of stuff but i was always left because out because that because i don't i think that um i mean mom wanted them for whatever reason i think david was trying to sell them but one of them got to him before the other person they got into this huge fight about it but what about grandma's pills when she yeah. needs them yeah so let her just die and it was like like really really fucked up shit like that well, see, Jasmine, that's the thing of being too nice, which I told you about. I got that from my mom, but I have to watch that and, and practice. You know, and then, you know, so it's Because she was an angel. <laughs> she and really I mean, was. she would just drink. Drink to cover the pain. That was... She didn't drink till she was 40, Brian. She didn't drink until um, my dad bought a gun to kill us all, you probably know, on Mother's yeah. Day of 1970. And it was after that she managed to get him put out of the house. Your grandma never touched a drink in her life, ever. She protected us from our father beating us all the time. Who beat David constantly? Beat me once when I tried to kill him when I was three. <laughs> Chapter three of the book called Comet Burger, and um, she never drank until she until my dad got out. We had to go on welfare. She had three kids. Well, David, but he wouldn't work or do anything. He just lived upstairs in the attic and lived yeah. off of her because of his social maturity, which was not his fault. But Grandma, back then there weren't services, Brian. There are now. You know, I hate to say this, but you know when you hear those mass shootings on television? That could easily have been David. Easily, because if he would have had his hands on guns to go postal and shoot people. But there wasn't social services back then to help people like David. So mom didn't know what to do, grandma. She just tried to keep him happy, but then it just got... It's like you're not, you're not helping things. It was this whole guilt. As you know, yeah. they ran. it just went on forever. So grandma I mean, would drink so not to think about it. But then that killed her health. That destroyed her liver yeah. and, and everything else. Because yeah, she I would mean, drink gallons of wine a day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot. Gallons. I mean, there was, there was multiple times when gallons. they were like, 
I would have to carry her around the house. Around the house. Because she couldn't walk. Like, I'd have to carry her up. So, you know, the bathroom was upstairs. Yeah. And I'd have to carry her up and down How the steps. How old are you? Five? Six? No, I mean, this is probably, probably like seven, eight, nine, ten. Like, in that How sad time. is that? It, I mean, it was just weird. Well, like, it, I, also, it also... I mean, I didn't understand it, but I hated it. Of course you did. Because you're seeing someone destroy themselves. Yeah. I mean, I didn't get it, but I just knew it, 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 it wasn't, wasn't right. right. Yeah. And and especially for someone who was as kind and wonderful as her. Because she was really the nicest person you could ever meet in your life. Oh, yeah. She, she would great. sacrifice everything. But that, but that was to cover her pain. That's how she did it. Because back then, when she was going through hell in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, when women were being beaten by their husbands, which Grandma always was, and by the men after that to support us, there was no, like, leave your husband and go to the social service. That didn't exist. Back yeah. then, you just covered up the black eye with your makeup and shut up. And that was her generation. And so she was still stuck in that. And plus, she suffered from her depression her entire life. And back then, if you were depressed, you're like, oh, go dye your hair. You know, that's how women were treated. And so mom just drank to cover the pain. And the book is all about that. It's all about how sometimes there's nothing else you can do because she wouldn't go see a therapist. I'd make appointments for her. She'd make appointments for herself, but she yeah. wouldn't show up because she was afraid what will happen to David because we'll take him out of the house. You're hitting your mother, you have to leave the house. But she's like, where will he go? He can't take care of himself. But you know, there was places you could go, Brian, because there is help. They could have got him into some kind of program I to mean, help at him. That, at, at that time, yeah, it was there, but like you said, they came from a time They came from things, a time where it wasn't talked about. Yeah, and like whenever exactly. the huge breaking point <sighs> for me with everybody in the family was, was when, when grandma broke her neck. She couldn't stay at the house because she needed somebody to watch her. And David wasn't going to watch her. No. So we had a bed brought into my mom's apartment. Yeah, yeah. And she was staying with us. And then there was one night this huge fucking fight came came out because mom came back all fucking drunk. Your and, mom? Yeah. Okay. And got into this huge fight with grandma. Who wasn't drinking. Who wasn't drinking. Yeah. And, like, she was sick in this bed that we had in the living room for her. Like, the hospital brought a bed into our house. God. And, like, I mean, I, and I was just like, holy shit. Like, this is fucking crazy. That next day, um, my I said something to my mom about it. It was the first time that I ever spoke up to her about okay. anything. We were in the car. I'll never forget this because we had just dropped Grant. We dropped her back off okay. at her house. And we're driving. And I don't remember what I said to her, but I told her. Your mom. Yeah, basically, I know. I said what short is like, hey, like. That was really wrong. Wrong. And you were like, what, 11? She stopped the car, smacked me in the face, oh and told me to shut up. See? And then two hours later, she was like, hey, do you want to go to the mall? And bought me all of this shit at the mall to try to make up for it. Oh, my God. And after that point, like, at some point I lost any emotional caring that I ever yeah. had for her oh was gone. I was like 12 or 13. I was like, you're fucking crazy. Like, it just, like, clicked in my head, like... You're insane. Grandma's sick. David's insane. David, what? You know? Oh. The only person that ever made sense was you. The drag queen in New York. Yeah. And you're, <laughs> you know, you're all the way out here. And and every time I would call, Grandma would just say, everything's fine. Oh, yeah. Your mom would never call me, ever. And David would just be like, everything's fine. Unless she wanted something. Yes, I know. I know. I mean, I had to do... Once I moved slash got kicked out of the house... How old were you when you got out of the house? 17. 
Well, we left like me. <laughs> we have a lot of similarities of trying well, to I survive. Mean, I think I've told you about this before, but I woke up. With cops lights shining in your head. Well, no, that happened. I heard none of this until the Westway Diner when you first came <laughs> to see me a no, year ago. No, I woke up with cop lights in my face because of my mom's coke-dealing boyfriend. I'm not fucking kidding. Like, I woke up with cop lights shining in my face. And they're like, they're, um, I had a ton of VHS tapes. They're like sure. tearing all my VHS t tapes apart, trying to like <laughs> see where other places he would have been hiding drugs. In my bedroom. I mean, at that time, I was like 15, 16. I was like way too old for it. I was like, this is fucking nuts. But then when I was 17, I woke up one night in no. bed and I saw my mom just dumping everything in my room into garbage bags. Like your video equipment stuff? or Yeah, like everything that was in my room, just putting it into garbage bags. And then I was like, okay, I'm just going to lay here. I'm just going to let this happen. I let her wait until she was done. Waited like 10 minutes and just kind of like pretended like I just woke up. This is so sad. I was like, I don't know if you noticed, but there, there's some stuff missing from my room. Like, I'm missing a few things. I mean, there was so oh much. It was God. obvious. Like, I, like there's, there, I noticed there's a couple things missing from my room. And at the time, I was, I had just, I had just started recording like music and stuff. Yeah, for real. And there was these black kids oh. that lived across the street and I was recording rap songs for them. And she was like, oh... I think I think your I think your rapper friends came over and took your stuff, and I was like, oh, because I was awake and I just watched you doing all of this stuff, and then she acted like I was crazy, and then like and then ten minutes later she brings starts carrying all this stuff back into the house on the bags, and she's like, oh, I found this stuff in the alley. I think they must have left it there. Brian, that's horrifying. It was like completely whacked, like. I couldn't make this up if I wanted to. Like. David called me and told me that story. David called me and told me that story, and of course I'm calling your mom, and she's not returning any phone calls. And I didn't know what to mention to you, because David, David said, don't tell Brian that I told you. And I didn't want to upset you anymore, so I would get you on the phone and say, is everything okay? And you would just say you weren't talking to your mom. Your mom wouldn't, because after Grandma died. And your mom wouldn't call me, and... and then Susan Breitbart called me, and she was afraid that you were doing hard drugs, too. At the same time, and I'm like, oh, my God, everything's, everything's lost. And then when I managed to get your mother on the phone and say, like, well, maybe I can come home for a visit after Grandma died. And I'd say, how about I came in two weeks? And then I would call that week, and there would never be any answer again for me to show up. I haven't talked to... Um I haven't talked to her. Well, we're not even really sure where she lives. No. I, I kind of found an address, because you know I'm a natural detective. And I keep thinking I'll send her a card, but a part of me says not to. Yeah, I... A part I mean, of me says you know, I not to. I didn't... I have Because she knows where I am, and I've called her so many times. That's the address I found. Is that it? I, unlike you, I'm not actively I know. trying to find her. I understand. I understand. But... I understand. But to get away from... To, to turn all of this bad into positive because I just got, took an anxiety pill. Yeah, because this got really bad. And a Charlie horse. Because this got real bad. Um, to take what positive we can out of this to get back into the current. We're okay. You've mentioned a few times that you're working on a book. Yes, which is all about this. <laughs> it's the whole book. It's the book of my life growing up in. See, so many things you don't know about the house you grew up, the grandma's house, because it used to be a brothel run by my Aunt Betty, which my mom was never allowed to go to. And he ended up moving in there after Aunt Betty burnt the roof off the top of that house. He was a pyromaniac madam. 
and turned into apartments and your grandfather, my dad, who you never met, of course, he was dead from alcohol by then, moved my mother in the house, knowing that it was a refurbished brothel, but did not know that the madam that he knew was his wife's older sister, because she hadn't seen her in 15 years. And the, the books... <laughs> That's grandma saying hello. So the book, start, the, the book starts off with my mom moving into the house pregnant with me. That's how it starts. And But the book is really about, it's all about me and my mom surviving the violence of the house. And it only goes till I leave at 19 when I get okay. on the bus to so leave. 1980, where this started. It's, you weren't born yet. That's yeah. where it, it goes. But it's all about how your grandma really was the, an angel, the best human being I've ever known. Oh, she was great. She was, honestly, oh, God, Jasmine, Brian's girlfriend's are Jasmine. She was, you would have, please. If you would have met her, you would have loved her. You, if you think, you think the crime in New York City could stop for a fucking oh, hour no. so we could do this. Brian, they didn't kill anyone in my building tonight. Consider that a miracle, because usually they do. So, and, and this is one of the good blocks. <laughs> you know, but um, no, but the book is all about all that. But it's about it's really about a fallen angel, which was your grandma and how she had to drink to cover the pain while she continued to sacrifice. So your sister could live. So David could live in the yeah. attic. But then I was the only one that left. Yeah, she was hysterical. She adored you. Like, oh, the book's to, all full of the humor. Even drunk, she was funny. To try Unless to like, got crazy. Yeah. Like, uh, connect this to like some of the people who no. know me that are, are listening to this still if they haven't turned this She's off unreal. because it's so miserable. It's so miserable. <laughs> we'll edit the bad parts. Um, she was like <coughs> when uh, when South Park the movie came out nobody's parents would take us. We were all in 7th oh. grade. Nobody would take Grandma us. Grandma fucking took us? Grandma. Yeah. Of she course took she us would. all to go see South Park. She loved it. Uh-huh. And um she, uh, God, that was when we were, <laughs> we were <laughs> when we were in seventh grade, we were all really into an insane clown posse. What's it called? Oh, yeah, clown yeah. Clown posse, those, and she thought it was hysterical. She was, like, laughing about oh, the yes. jokes and the fart jokes. Like, she loved it. Brian, it's all through the book. And she was, you know, she would do little dances and stick out her false teeth. Yeah. And it's all because my, I'm sorry, Carol Burnett and Phyllis Stiller had nothing on my mother, your grandmother. She had, a, but that's how my life was like your life. It was full of a lot of violence and alcohol, but it wasn't grandma. It was everyone else. And she kept the humor and making this. Do you remember the big cake she would make? Yeah. Do you remember well, like when they'd be pink and match the kitchen yes. walls? That was her, that was my coming home cake. She knew gay as I was, that I love the pancakes. Now, that's an odd thing, too, with, like, you know, the whole gay thing. She never thought she knew any people that were gay. It turned out all of her best friends <laughs> were gay. Yeah. But they didn't, they didn't know, but back then, things were closeted. And, like, you know, guys she would date, like the photographer before my father, who kind of discovered her. It's in the book, because, you know, she was a model, you know. I mean, there's her picture, Jasmine, up there. Did you see a picture of her? Oh, I'll bring it down so she was stunning. She was like you. She's a beautiful young woman. No, but she was really, she looked like Audrey Hepburn. She was five. She was like five nine, five ten. She was tall. When you met her, she was older and shrinking. But that was big back in the 50s for a woman. And, um, and she would tell me later, she goes, you know, I didn't understand homosexuality or gay stuff. And then I realized that, you know, all my friends growing up, the ones I got along with, turned out later they were gay. Because, it, it, <laughs> honey, people are people. But when you're gay, especially for my generation, you were far less judgmental about anyone. Ken, what was it like, like, coming out when 
I was like, never in. Okay. I was never <laughs> Ryan, I was never in, ever. I, I, I can't imagine it. No, I was just always me, and I don't care who knew. And um, I didn't care because I was very political. I remember when I was, um, I guess, 16, Anita Bryant, that bitch, was doing that whole anti-gay crusade and, like, throwing gay people out of their homes in Florida. You know, you can't deliver the mail if you're gay. Like, asshole. Turned out her husband was gay. <laughs> Go figure. Bitter. Talk about bitter fruit, honey. So that was her thing. And um, and I remember I was 16 and I was watching it and grandma was drinking, of course. But then she was involved with Jim, which was the guy after my dad who was worse drunk than my dad ever was. At least my dad went to work. Jim didn't do anything. He lived downstairs from us. I made it hell. But his, his, his um, sister Betty had money and that's how it kept clothes for your sister and me to go to school. Anyways, so I bet she, Jim would beat, beat grandma. But in the 90s, I went back, she's like, Timmy, I never should have got involved with Jim. I just knew we were on welfare for two years. There were times, Brian, where me and your grandma, my mom, would not eat dinner so your sister could eat. We literally wouldn't eat because there wasn't enough thing for three. And, and I would get out of school, out of um, junior high, and I would go to grandma and go scrub floors with her of people's houses while your, while your mom sat there. And um, oh God, I would sit there and it was a really tough life. So this guy moved in and was a worse alcoholic than ever. But anyways, um, but his sister paid my mom to take care of him, but then she drank to put up with his beatings. So I remember Anita Bryant was like discriminating against all these gay people throwing them out of their houses in Dade County, Florida. And I was watching a TV <laughs> and I'm like, something must be done. <laughs> And my mom was like, what are you talking about? I said, you can't discriminate against gay people. And I was only 16, you know, but I mean, please, I knew, I knew it wasn't the cheerleaders I was looking at, honey. It was the football players. I wasn't stupid. And I'm like, and God knows a few of them tried. And I'm like, no. And so afterwards, our mother's like, Jimmy, you have to be careful. You know, people might think you're one of them, then they might beat you up. And it wasn't a prejudice thing. She was always afraid I would get hurt. You know, your mom was the same way, afraid I would get hurt when she was little. I'm like, well, mom, you know, I am gay. And he's saying, there was a whole thing like, you're really not gay. You're just saying that because, you know, you always help black people. And you're not. <laughs> it's in the book. It's in the book. And I said, mom, she goes, you were always defending black people. And you were always doing civil, my, civil rights marches when you were a little kid. You know, and you were always, you, had, you were the only kid in the neighborhood that had black friends. Because my brother would threaten to murder them walking in the house because it's very racist and stuff like that. I suffered with the one guy, Raymond, but he became friends. But anyways, and she, I said, Ma, when I told you I was defending civil rights, I didn't tell you I was black, did I? So, but I am gay. Yeah. <laughs> that's the cool thing. She said, you're just saying that because Elton John came out. Because that, that's when Elton John came out in Rolling Stone. I said, Ma, Elton said he was bisexual, and I'm not. I'm gay all the way. And she goes, oh, my God, you can't tell your brother will try to kill you. I'm like, let him. You know, so I was always a ballsy kid. I mean, David never scared me. That was the weird thing about him, because I knew he was nuts. And I knew it was because my father beating him. So I knew there was a scary part about him that I tried to maneuver around. I had to deal with him like someone who wasn't all there. And then he got really nice to me coming back. He got much nicer towards my later trips home because he knew I wasn't going to live there. Well, I want to go live in the attic, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I think that he, at some point, Very he, odd. he calmed down he, as far as like his intake of whatever the fuck he was doing. For years. And then it started again towards the end. 
it was always a wave yeah. of addiction with the whole family. And you never knew when it was going to happen. People that are abused when they're young, there's a big psychological damaging thing. Yeah. Because you always think you did something wrong. And that was part of grandma's That's, thing. She always felt she did something wrong. That's one thing that I guess I'm really fortunate that yeah. I, I never... Oh, I mean, aside from, like, whenever I was, like, a little bit too old and my mom was trying to, like, get physical with me, I was like, fuck off. Your mother? Well, I told you about when she hit me and stuff like that. I mean, oh, I, was yeah, like, that, I, mean yeah. I was, like, 11 that or 12 then. Yeah, but, I mean, I think that, like, she wasn't in her right mind. Well, she's also repeating the pattern of what she yeah. saw happening to my mother. But I, uh, I guess what I'm getting at is that oh, Lord. I didn't, well, never really had to deal with any abuse but like I saw a you lot saw, of just like you saw so much and it's craziness but, and it was so weird just like but taking in this information and not knowing how to process it and Brian it like, affects you this is my family this is normal no, and it's like it's not normal and it was just like but that's the thing even like uh, everything on uh, my dad's side of the family they're all fucking crazy See, too I know nothing about that excuse my cramp again I don't anything not about your dad not as crazy as us Maybe not as crazy, crazy as us your dad was always really nice yeah. What I remember. But he had alcohol and drug problems, too, which I didn't know about. I guess everyone did. They all did, and I didn't know it. You know? Yeah. I don't think that my dad was... I think he just drank a lot. I think that was always his thing. I don't... You know. Who knows? Who knows, right? Yeah. Who knows? Well... But again, back to the pot oh. of shit. All right. What are we talking about? What was it? Where, where I don't it? know. What else was I really curious about with you? When okay, I, so from the... I came out of the closet and came to New York. Um... <laughs> What about more about, like, the drag stuff? Oh, in New York? Well, New York, um... Well, let's see. Well, when I first started performing, I was very androgynous. It was very David Bowie, Alice Cooper, the whole thing. And then I did a play down at Jackie 60, which is a big place. It was a kind of a Warhol factory thing. And they were doing um, a play of the reaction of Stonewall, which was like the big gay revolution. And he wanted me to play one of the transgendered activists, right? Because I never really did a full-on drag thing before. I just did an androgynous rock and roll thing. And so I thought, okay, I'll play this like one trans character who beats up the cops. So I got all done up in the full you know, headlong, you know, transgender thing. And I'm out there doing the show. And the bizarre thing is, Jasmine, which, you know, women, sometimes you can understand this. It can be a double-edged sword being anything that's feminine and, and men find attractive. It can be empowering, but also can be quite scary. It can go either two ways. And all of a sudden, all these men that I was doing my rock and roll show, people go, oh, yeah, great show. That's like Bowie. Then all of a sudden, you look like a beautiful woman. It's a whole different reaction. And they don't even recognize you. But at the same time, it was kind of empowering in a way. It's like, you know, it's kind of interesting how you can have power when someone finds you, this is not even talking about music, when someone just with your image finds you very desirable sexually, it can put you like on a different footing with men. Because all I knew of men growing up was they beat women. <laughs> okay. That's all I knew. Then all of a sudden, I'm the six foot two voluptuous blonde who men are like, you know, looking up to me in an empowering situation. It's like, oh, time for revenge. You know, <laughs> let me write songs about Hitler and beat you up. You know, things like that. But no, it was, a, it was a whole different thing. And then I started just playing more with the image of not really just being male or female, just my own kind of creation, which was unusual, Brian, because all my other music I'd done before was very asexual. So I started using more sex, really, but in a very, like, transgender, 
weird kind of womanly desirable way mixing it with my rock songs but I would deconstruct a lot while I was on stage and it a lot of times they can't tell what you are. They just think you're a big voluptuous woman. And I would do the whole song and I start doing the stripping because I would do it as like a Muslim tranny. And I would get down to the brass tacks and then I would not wear any undergarments and lift my burqa at the end like Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct. <laughs> it was a burqa. Muslims in the audience, honey. And I would spread my legs and half the men are like, oh my God, they think you're a big woman. And then I'd pull off the veil and rip the wig off and people would just jump up and applaud. I'm like, well, that's a gimmick. So I, <laughs> <clears throat> that's my song, White Dot. So I started using sex and desire and power in a lot of my rock songs because I have this thing about making people kind of the same. Because I think male and female people are people. There's differences in everyone. And everyone has part of male and female in them. And some people are just naturally androgynous. And like when Annie Lennox, one of my idols, when she put out that album a few years ago, when she was all pale with her dog collar on the front, and she says, I like this image because it's, you can't really tell what age I am. You can't really tell what gender I am. I'm not airbrushed. I'm not trying to be perfect. And I'm like, that's an artist. Because I like warts and all. And so I deconstruct a lot on stage. Like, I might come out looking like a voluptuous six foot two blonde, and I'll leave looking like a chubby queen. Who cares? <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Because I like to break images and what people think people are supposed to look like or act or behave. So I just kind of do my, I just, that's how I do my own thing. Now, the drag scene in New York in the 90s, huge, which is where Paul comes from, and many performers came from here, and very, very edgy. Writing my most edgy songs, <clears throat> like Hitler's Daughter, High Fashion Model, Glamour Overdose, Queen of Funk. I have just all these crazy songs and a big following. And then I'm in 1999, I'm playing a demo for a cover I did of Marilyn Monroe's I Want to Be Loved by You. I did a punk bizarre cover and I played it. In I remember it. That's it. That was my the second biggest hit in Thailand. Only time I ever made a lot of money from a record. And um, a DJ whose name was Chris Ho. <laughs> Dr. Hoes. The hoes love our family. <laughs> That's all I can say. Well, when you're born a whorehouse, the hoes gonna love your family. And so, not that I'm anything against hoes. God knows. My day when I worked at the Blue Angel, it's a lap dancer. And the thing is, and I would do it again if it was open. Um, he came in, he said, do you want a record deal? This is 1999. And the weird thing was, your grandma, I know. Do you remember how grandma would talk about gold lights coming to her? Yeah. She would predict things. I mean, Jasmine, she called me the day before I was discovered, my first record. She goes, Timmy, a gold light came through the living room. Something's going to happen with your music. And I'm eating an egg roll in Chelsea going, my hope so, because I keep doing all these shows. And, you know, RuPaul's really famous, and I'm working really hard. I'm not getting anywhere. <laughs> Boy, George has been on Love Heroin 12 times, and I'm still trying for my first big break. And she goes, no, a big light came through. The next day, I'm playing the demo of that song, and this DJ goes, hi, Who's this playing? I said, oh, that's me. And he goes, would you like a record deal in Southeast Asia? I'm like, well, pardon me? He goes, my name is Chris Ho. I'm like, oh my God, Dr. Ho's DJ nephew. And <laughs> because we distribute Madonna's records, Boy George records on compilations. And they said, we would like to release it. And they released it and gave me like that little mini album deal. And I made some good money off that. And that um, was my first CD, Love Me or Die. And, and I sold it out of a different light and became a huge big seller. So that was okay to do. And that was New York. And then 9-11 happened and things changed. 
very quickly, Giuliani came and destroyed the city. I mean, he was already here, but the nightlife died. It was dying all before 9-11, Brian. But see, Giuliani, even pre-9-11, was enact enacting things called cabaret laws. And it was to shut down the nightlife of New York to make New York City what it is now, kind of just a place for shopping and rich people. Yeah. Basically, if you had a bar or a club within 500 feet of a church, they could close you down. And they were closing down. You were using laws from like the 1600s and closing down every club I performed in, every space. And if, and if you were if you were a bar that had a jukebox and someone got up and say you're playing Rapture by Blondie, you put in your quarter and you dance for two seconds, there'd be an undercover agent. He would find the bar $5,000 for dancing without a cabaret license to shut that bar down so it could be a condominium for millionaires, you know, the next day. That's why he, was, that's what he did, Giuliani. I'm really fascinated. It I changed hear, overnight. I hear so many stories about the way used this to city used to be. It was totally cool. It's gone now. It's, I, it's not New York anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's what everybody always says. So. It's, um, an after, it's an after shopping mall for millionaires. That's what it became. I mean, that's why no one lives here anymore. I mean, people just, why well, I want to move to San Francisco because it's a better place to live. Although San Francisco is now being gentrified, you know, because all the tech kids have taken it over. So it's yeah, people can't Google. afford Google. They're smashing the buses. I love it when they block the buses. They do that. They block the buses. Don't let them go to their work. You know that, right? Oh, my God. Google all the protests in San Francisco. You're going to you'll see it when you're out Google there. Google the protests against Google. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you have to Google it. They block all the buses because they're like, get out of our city. Because they're using it as a bedroom community. They're all working in Silicon Valley. And then they just sleep in San Francisco. And your rent goes from 1500 to 3000 And the landlord can throw you out with 30 days notice. It's called the Alice Act. If he decides to turn his building into condos, he can throw you out in 30 days. It's a California law. They're trying to overturn it. So San Francisco is having a revolution right now as we speak. Just Google San Francisco protests Google. And they smash in the windows of a Google bus in Oakland. You know, back in December, they're like, just get out of here, destroy them, because they can't. People can't. Regular people can't afford to live there. You know, not that it's, anyone it's should weird. get hurt, but it's it's too you know, crazy. Jasmine's mom works for Google. No, <laughs> well, it's nothing. It's Google. It's no. It's just about the tech workers have just moved into the city, and the landlords are using that to throw everyone out. She was telling me, about and no that one can afford the rent. Happening. Yeah, because yeah. the landlords take advantage of that. So they're trying to work out some kind of agreement, but what can be done? I don't know, you know, but, but it's kind of a plan of not just tech people, but it's kind of a plan of the Manhattanization of San Francisco. It's all about money and artists can't afford to live there. Artists can't afford to live here anymore unless you're in a building like mine. I mean, you can't even afford to live in Brooklyn anymore. I mean, when I worked at Hard Rock Cafe, I mean, there was like, what, 500 employees in that huge building next door, the upstairs and the, the things. like. And I only knew of like three people besides myself who actually lived in Manhattan. And they were managers. The rest lived in the Bronx, <laughs> Queens, had five roommates in Brooklyn. So yeah, it changed really quick here. But um, I'd like to get back to London and San Francisco and finish this book. I'd like to get a nice advance from this book. The reason why I'm writing the book, Brian, is um, a couple things. It's also therapy. Writing this sure. book sent me to therapy. I go to therapy every Monday. I go every Monday. I love him. We sit there, we talk about the book, and I talk about your mom, my mom, guilt I have for, you know, not 
I couldn't fix everything. I'm not being, I'm not being Superman. <laughs> I could put the thing <laughs> on and hit my head, but in reality, I, I can't make him stop drinking. You know, so it was, it was that kind of thing. And I go to him every week. He's great, and because writing the writing the book, Brian brought up so much stuff, especially all the violence I saw against my mom. It was like because I saw it since my first memories. You know, I'm sure, I mean, I think that day one. Also, just like us connecting, so like we connected. That's shocking. Uh. Very much, I think, kind of later after everything happened, we talked briefly now and then. Yeah. But it wasn't until I think like Facebook. the internet brought us. I together. found you on Facebook, and I would write letters to you, but you told me you never got them. No. I wrote you so many letters, Brian, throughout the years, after Grandma died, when she was still alive. I did all the time, like come visit me in New York. What do you want for your birthday, or things like that, or I'll buy you a ticket to New York. You never got one letter. No. That's. See, I didn't know any of this was happening, and your mother wouldn't even call me back. So I'm, I figured, you know, that, you know, maybe this family thing was all too much for you, and you wanted to just go your own way, because I'd already heard through David that, you know, Susie was having pill issues or whatever, yeah. but so was he. So I never knew who to believe. <laughs> I was always in here in New York going, who am I, who am I supposed to believe? But I, but I thought you would go your own way. And then I was on a plane to San Francisco, 2010, going out there for a month or two to do a ton of shows before I started writing the book. And I was working to Hard Rock before they cut our bonuses. Bastards. And I'm um, glad they're going down the tube like Planet Hollywood. And then um, I was on a plane. I thought, I wonder if Brian is like on Facebook. And there you were. And I wrote to you from the plane, I think. I said, okay. Brian, I'm on a plane flying to San Francisco. Is this you? And you're like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay, now, because I wasn't sure if you even wanted to hear from me. No, I was, like, really, really excited. I really wasn't sure because I thought oh, maybe. Oh, really like, Well, I really thought it was just all too much for you. And you were starting your own life. Let me start my own life and forget that I don't want to I mean, it. I did, and you know, that's a th it's, it sucks. Like, I know what to do. Whenever, like, the idea of, like, uh, family and yeah. things like that, it's always been really fucked up for me. Yes. <laughs> uh, because, I like, know. I mean, like, there was, like, those couple years, like, when I was, Where like, it was good. Four, five, six, it was fine. It, I was going back home every three or four months. It was no fighting. It was, it was. Then, after thought, that, you know, it just, it went nuts. It, it went nuts forever after yeah. that. And then, but. Even, but even through all that bullshit, it's always like, you know, people ask about my family. Yeah. And it's like, well, everybody sucks, but I have this awesome uncle in, oh, New, in New York. I didn't know that. No, seriously. Like, I always. I was like, he's not answering my letters. <laughs> I just will stop no. writing. No, I always. It's just. Oh, that's very nice. It just seemed like you were the only person that, I like. She could have gone to the mail first. I addressed yeah. them to you. Like, you were the, the only person that really had any motivation. I sent you punk rock cards. You never got any anything. of them? No. Uh, but no, no, it was just, it was, it was motivational. Because it was like, uh, knowing that, like, you know, you... You can escape this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even though I didn't get quite as far as you, I'm still... You travel more than I do on that goddamn boat bus. <laughs> Please, you're going to San Francisco next month. Brian, I still think there could be a happy ending. The book can maybe help people like, you know, grandma and people like us were raised in families like that, that you, you can't escape and get out of it. And you could be a giving person like your grandma, my mom was, but you don't have to sacrifice yourself for it. Her generation thought that's what you did, you know, and people like David can get help. 
You know, they, yeah. he, he should have been getting help in his 20s. He should have been in therapy, getting help, yeah. and, and learning a trade. Because he was very smart, David. His records, and he was smart. He could have gotten a job working somehow, somewhere. Working or, in the field that he knew. The field that he was he in. He so fucking much. I, 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 what, I mean, that's what I started like learning about he music knew, and movies was from him. He could have gotten... I mean, granted, you know, he was... I watched The Exorcist for the first time on Thanksgiving when uh, I was nine years old. I still haven't seen that and never will. <laughs> but, like... Like you, Jasmine, I wouldn't even look at that movie. You couldn't pin me down to look at that. Commercials come on TV now for, like, those kind of movies, and I go like this. I do it, I go like this, la, 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 all the way to the oh, river. Oh, yeah, that's... that's I do, <laughs> have you seen the horrible commercial for Oculus? Yeah, I was playing on the advertisement. I was like, oh, my God. It's on television in New York. Uh, Nick at night. I'm trying to watch the Golden Girls. <laughs> and every two seconds, it's like, I'm like, I go like this, Jasmine. I'm writing and I go, la, 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 la. And my you must think I'm nuts. Why are you going la, la, la? Is that your new song? It sucks. You know? <laughs> but anyways, Brian, but I think there could be a happy ending. I hope this book helps people, but it also helps you and me. You know, it's to, you can survive these things, but people don't mean to be, David didn't mean to be this way, grandma didn't mean to drink so much, she couldn't walk up steps, but people are in a lot of pain. And when they don't know how to deal with it healthily, like getting therapy and going to counseling, and when they're afraid to do that or don't know, they just self-medicate. That's what drugs are. To, I mean, my problem was I repeated the pattern, a lot of, of doing any drugs. I never did. But I repeat the pattern of getting involved with men who are either on drugs, alcoholic, or in the closet. Because I was going to fix them all. Guess mm. what? Doesn't work. My last boyfriend overdeed upstairs. We'll see what happens in life, Brian. I'm so glad that we're, we're family. Yeah. Ah! Well, <laughs> to, to, to wrap everything up, up yes. I guess my, my last question yes. is... Well, Do you ever plan on getting back into performing? Well, yes. Are you still performing? Oh, in I San mean, Francisco, yes. But okay. not in New York. There's nothing to do here. But right now, Brian, um, well, New York, there's really not a nightlife like there used to be, right? Uh, and but, yeah. There is. In San Francisco, I do shows whenever I'm out there. I do tons of shows and record new songs. Sure. Um, yeah, but yeah. But right now, um, in New York, there's not nothing to do nightlife-wise, really. Unless I want to do drag queen bingo, which I really don't want to do. Uh, that's what that it's like. That sounds depressing. Well, that's what... That's what... Because <laughs> New York is being taken over. Over now. You don't have to whisper. Okay. They can't, well, they they can't they hear you. Because New York is taken over now from rich kids from the Midwest and whose parents have money or whatever, and they have a very Midwestern mentality where they think watching a drag queen doing bingo is edgy, believe me. <laughs> Let me get my burka out of the cleaners. I'll show you edgy, honey. You know, it's all. But they won't book me here for that. San Francisco, they will. It's more edgy. San Francisco is edgy. It's for artsy. So, um, yeah, they are do tons of shit. But right now, I'm just focusing on the book so I can... Um, get in advance, get a deal, okay. and then move the hell out of here. I was going to do a club, and I was going to call it, you know, trans fat for, like, full-figure drag queens. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I went the label <laughs> to have the trans fat. I know, your uncle has weird ideas. I call it, I would have the label to look like that trans fat warning yeah. there. And had I be, me and all the other girls were voluptuous to be like, trans fat, where the flavor's at. Every Friday night at the sun. That's what I wanted. And it could be like on the back of an Oreo thing that would be advertisement. I know, I'm crazy. But that's what I want to do. And out there, when I do San Francisco, Brian, you can do shows, performances every night, put on plays. New York, really, you can't do it anymore. It's just, the plays here, you might have noticed, they're all Disney. 
Everything's yeah. Disney. There's no edgy off-Broadway like there used to be here. Because there's really no off-Broadway. It's just everything's mainstream. Oh, yeah. Money, Taurus, mainstream, Disney, Donald, Duck, Mickey Mouse. So that's what I do. Yes, I do lots of performances when I'm in San Francisco. And in London, I might go to London. Right now, I'm just kind of writing and planning. But one day at a time, Brian. That's hey, all. that's all we can do. That's all we can do. And my advice to everyone is, I always tell people, I, it's going to be the name of my third book. And it's called Fingers Crossed, Legs Apart. Yes, that's the name of my third book. And I, I also would like to say to your audience, it doesn't matter, back to gender, it doesn't matter what's between your legs, it's who. And that's all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this. Why, you're... You're welcome, and I will come see you soon in Pittsburgh. All right, thanks. Goodbye, Pittsburgh. And that's all, folks. I hope you all enjoyed the conversation. My apologies for all the heavy family stuff. But hey, you all know me that much better now. We all bonded together, and I hope you liked it. Be sure to stop back next week for another episode Maybe. I'm going to be in California this week, and I plan on doing one, but I might get distracted because, you know, California. So, we'll see. Either way, I am still Sykes. Start the Beat Podcast. 2014. Woo! Woo! Thanks for listening.